Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. new. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors. It is really good to be able to share with you today. Uh, Today we are starting a new series. This series is called Vision. It's a real simple series. It's a short series, only four weeks. And you know, for me, that's actually a pretty short one. Uh, What we're going to do is I'm going to take some time, as well as Pastor Jordan down in Spencer, he's taking some time. We're going to share with you what is the elders' five-year vision that they have been working on, and we're going to be trying to roll out uh, to the church. And we'll be focusing on this for the next half a decade. But as I was working on the message, and I got thinking about this, you know, this is not just the time for me to share the elders' five-year vision, but there's a lot of us who are here, who are sort of newer with Crosswinds, haven't been around here for a while. So this is an opportunity for me to rewind a little bit, share with you a little bit about the mission of Crosswinds, what drives us, and also share with you the core values of Crosswinds, you know, why we do what we do. And then I'll go ahead and dive into the five-year plan that the elders want to share with you. Because then you'll see how that fits into our missions and our core values and how that all works together. So just to tell you a little bit what our mission is, our mission is really simple. And we had Kendra on the video sharing it with you. It's we are about reaching people with Jesus. That's what we're about as a church. I don't know if you realize it, but uh, when it comes to missions... We don't just support missionaries who are overseas and around the world, but each one of us is a missionary. God has planted us here in this community, and God's planted others in the Spencer campus, Crosswinds Church, in that community. He has us there for a reason, and that is to reach the people around us who do not know Jesus Christ. That our job is when we leave this building, is to just build friendships, relationships with our neighbors and co-workers, and then to tell them about Jesus. Tell them how much God loves them and what it means that Jesus died for them. Our job is to invite people to Crosswinds Church where they can experience the family of God. They can experience the love of God. This is so super important for us. In fact, I want you to know that we know that it's easy to lose sight of what we're about. So we sort of followed the principle from Deuteronomy where it talks about um, good Jews were supposed to put Scripture on their doorposts because when the kids would see the Scripture, they'd learn the Scripture, they'd remember the Scripture. So we tried to do that with our mission. In fact, you notice that in the foyer, we have right up there as you walk in the doors, reaching people with Jesus. That's our mission. You go down to the gym today, which I certainly hope you do for the pulled pork lunch. Down there, you'll see across the side of the gym, reaching people with Jesus. That is our mission. We're missionaries for the good news of Jesus. Well, that's our mission. There's something else called core values. Originally, a number of years ago, we called it the Faith Church Fingerprint. When we were still Faith Church, before we changed our name to Crosswinds Church, And what these things are is the way we go about reaching people with Jesus. These are the things that define who we are. We originally developed them before we launched a second campus. Like, What would always be true about a Crosswinds campus? Whether it's in Spirit Lake, Spencer, Wyndham, what do you always want to find there? There's actually seven of these core values, and I'm going to tell you that you can read all seven of them if you go to our church website. I'm only going to give you three because actually I have to spend most of my time teaching you the elders' five-year vision. But let me just give you a little teaser on what our core values are. The number one core value that's always true of all Crosswinds campuses is this, the Bible. We believe relevant expository Bible teaching and Christ-centered worship are the backbone of church health. Wherever you go to a Crosswinds campus, we want to keep our finger in the text. That's why we preach right through Scripture. And we believe that if you teach 
illustrate, explain, and apply the Word of God, the Word of God will not return void. God uses it to create spiritual life in us. He uses uses the Word of God when it's teached and taught to sustain spiritual life in us. This is the most important thing we can do. So we do not drift off of this book. Pastor Andy, one of the responsibilities he has when it comes to worship songs is the worship songs, you know, it may not, they could be faddish, but we don't care about that. They have to be solid scriptural songs, either singing the words of scripture or singing something that reinforces scripture. Very important for us. That is the backbone, as we say, of what it means to have church health. The second core value we have is community. We believe authentic relationships that serve one another honor Christ in the life of the church. Community is a really big thing for us on all of our campuses. We don't want people who just come to church and then leave church. You should walk into a Crosswinds church and feel like this is your family. This is where you belong. This is where people genuinely love you and they care about you. And when tough times come in our life, your church family is the one who stands around you. Your church family is the one who cares about you, prays for you, practically supports you. Super important. Number two core value. This is also why, by the way, we are frequently trying to encourage you, saying after you come into life at Crosswinds, the next most important thing we want you to do is get involved in a life group at Crosswinds. Because a life group is where you belong. A life group is where you can get much closer than you can ever on a Sunday morning. A life group is where you go through life together and pray for one another together, which is why this is super important. I'm going to skip a number of the other core values, just jump to the final one in the interest of time, just to let you know what it is. It's this, culture. We believe in engaging the culture and redeeming it for the glory of Christ. If you've been around a church for any length of time, you know one thing a church is not good at is change. Churches don't like to change. They're very good at being relevant to people who are already dead or people who are actually almost dead. We don't want to be that way at Crosswinds. God has not just placed us in a community that we have to reach, but he's placed us in a culture we have to reach. When somebody from our community walks through the door, we don't want there to be a whole bunch of cultural barriers they have to overcome to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. This sort of determines what kind of worship style we have. This determines like, why we have a coffee bar. Quite honestly, guys, I'm not a real coffee fan, but you guys are. Most people are in our culture, so hey, we want to serve good coffee. That's okay. It determines, for instance, why we use a church app. You say, why would you have a church app? How often do you spend on your phone? You guys live on your phone. To not interact on the phone is sort of like foolish. It's being irrelevant to our culture, which is why we did the hard work of developing a church app. Well, this morning, I'm going to teach on the elders' five-year vision. Let me explain to you how that connects with our mission and our core values. Our mission will never change. We are always about reaching people with Jesus. Our core values will never change. We're always going to have our finger in the text. We're always going to be teaching the Bible. We're always going to be focusing on community and connecting with culture. But the elders' five-year vision, that's really only for five years, quite honestly. It's what the elders, after prayer and thought, these are seven things that they feel that they want crosswinds on both of its campuses, or all of its campuses, I should say, to focus on working on And if we can focus on these things, they believe this will help us achieve our mission better and this will help us live out our core values better. Let me go ahead and ask you to take out this little sheet called vision. I'm just going to 
read through these uh, seven points that the elders have put together that they're going to have us try and focus on for the next five years. I'll start with the bold section on the top. It says, we believe that focusing on implementing these seven priorities will help us better achieve our mission of reaching people with Jesus. Number one, we are tirelessly focused on reaching people with Jesus, willing to leave the 99 for the one. As a church, on both of our campuses, we want to develop a much greater heart for lost people. We want to focus on being able to reach people who do not know Jesus. We don't want to focus on trying to get people from other churches to come here. We don't want to focus on trying to get dissatisfied customers at other churches to come here. That's going to happen. Okay, it happens. We want to focus on lost people who have never met Jesus, who do not know Jesus, and unless they hear the gospel, they will not be saved. That's what we want to focus on. Number two, we want to make space for new people to serve and to lead. We talked about this a little bit in our Second Timothy series during the summer. The importance of passing the baton to the next generation. You guys remember that? Churches are not just notorious for not wanting to change, but they're also notorious for not allowing real positions of leadership to young people, that young men who God is raising up and empowering for ministry. What typically happens is just older men control ministry, and they push everybody out. We don't want to be that way at Crosswinds. We want to recognize who God is raising up, give them real opportunities to lead, lead Coach them and help them be really successful next-generation leaders in the church. Number three, we always have spots for people to plug into healthy, vibrant, sermon-based life groups. I told you earlier, our goal is that people come to Crosswinds, and the first place they plug into Crosswinds after attending here is getting involved in a life group, a sermon-based life group. We'll talk more about that in the upcoming weeks. But to be honest, right now, we have a fair amount of life groups, but most of them are, I would term, closed life groups. People who say, well, we've been together for a number of years. We really don't want to have anybody new in our life group. But what happens if God answers our prayers? What happens if God brings through the door people who are new in Christ, people who desperately need to have a small group that disciples them and encourages them and helps them in the basics of the faith. There needs to be life groups where they can plug into. So we are going to focus on that for the next few years. Number four, we want to be known as a church that loves on the communities it serves in very tangible ways. People know us for things we do outside of the four walls of the church building. We want to be a church that's known for giving to our community, not taking from our community. If the only way that people can experience Crossman's Church is by walking through the doors of Crossman's Church, that's not healthy. That's not good. We want to... Be Actually, if we have to cut down the number of things we do in these walls so we can do more things in the community outside of these walls, we will. That's some of the things we'll have to wrestle with over the next five years. We want to be out in the community serving and helping people with real needs, rubbing shoulders with people who do not know Jesus, having all these opportunities to share about Jesus and say, hey, why don't you come to church with me on Sunday? introduce you to my church family and introduce you to the God that I know and love. Number five, we're the best neighbors our neighbors ever had. We seek to have neighborhoods so connected that people turn down promotions in order to stay where their families are so loved and supported. Just like we want to be a church that's in our community and serving our community, we want to be neighbors that love our neighbors in the community. Imagine that. 
people would actually maybe turn down promotions to stay here because they love their neighborhood and the place that they belong. Folks, you know this. We have a lot of people who are young families that move in the area. They're here for just a few years. They're given an opportunity to take a, a more advanced job, and they, they take that, and they move out of the community. Wouldn't it be great if some of those young families didn't take those advanced jobs in the sense that they want to stay here so much because of the healthy neighbors and church family that they belong to? Now, whether they take another job or not is a different story, but we want to be that healthy neighborhood and healthy church that no one wants to leave. Number six, we change and give up what we like for the sake of others. We are known as a church that embraces change. You guys know, change is all over our culture. Things are constantly changing, more so now than ever before. Churches typically like to resist change. They like to fight change. We don't want to be that kind of church. We want to be a church that is regularly about the business of changing. Now, there are some things that won't change. I mean, the gospel will not change. Teaching the word of God will not change. Remember, that's a core value. That's who we always will be. But other things will change. Maybe the music will change a little bit. I mean, the carpet may change. Chairs may change. Those kind of things will change. We want to be a church that is okay with those things changing. Doesn't fight them, but embraces them. And lastly is number seven. We ask big things from people because we expect big things from God. In our Bible, we have all kinds of amazing stories where God showed up in a big way. We do not want to be people who get to the end of our life and say, you know what, we pray, played it safe, we, we never took a risk for Jesus, we made it through. We would rather be that church, that group of people that took a risk for Jesus and saw God show up in a big way. I'll give you one example of this in the past. You know that we have two campuses. Our Spencer campus just had the blessing of being able to pay cash, $300,000 cash to buy the new building for Spencer. But a few years ago, I remember the elder meeting when we talked about launching that campus and bringing on the extra pastoral staff and all the questions. And we looked at the budget. There was not enough money. I mean, either God was going to have to show up or things are going to have to stop and salaries are going to have to go. It was one of those things where this was a big step of faith to launch the other campus. And I want you to know, God was faithful. He was faithful. And now we have an amazing Spencer campus. Jordan and I work together every week. We are so much, so grateful to do together what neither of us could do alone. To work as a team. Great stuff. We just want more and more of that kind of thing to happen here at Crosswinds Church. So those, my friends, are the, the key things on the sermon handout. Um, or I'm going to cover all seven of those points in the next four weeks. This morning, though, I'm only going to focus on the first point, number one, on the top of this elder's vision. And the reason I want to do that is because I think this one is so incredibly important Really, all of the other pieces flow out of this point. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about it. It's this, starting on the top of your sermon handout. We are tirelessly focused on reaching people with Jesus, willing to leave the 99 for the 1. And one of my jobs this morning is to give you the biblical basis of why the elders feel after prayer and thought that this is a really key thing we want to focus on for the next five years. To do that, I'd like to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 tells us about God's heart for lost people. And it tells us, Jesus tells us how we are to treat lost people. And before we get into this, I want to be just rather blunt, really sort of honest with you. And just say it's very easy for churches, crosswinds included, to lose a heart for the lost. It is very easy 
to come to church, hang out with your Christian friends, go home, go to work, never talk about Jesus with anybody. Never share Jesus with anybody. Never invite the people we work with and see on a daily basis to church. It is very easy to not have a heart for the lost. Isn't that true? Yeah, right? Myself included, I understand that. And our culture encourages us to keep our faith a private thing, a personal thing. But if we never talk about Jesus around people who desperately need the good news of Jesus, how will anybody be saved? How will anybody be born again unless we get out of our comfort zone and open our mouth about Jesus? Will people make fun of us? Definitely. Will people think we're weird? Definitely. It's going to happen. But there's no way to be born again unless we do it. So let's dive into the top here. First, I want to give you the background of Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 is the center parable of Jesus' Judean ministry. It's the longest and one of Jesus' greatest parables. The Gospel of Luke divides into a number of sections. There's a large section in the middle from about uh, chapter 9, verse 48, through chapter 19, verse 42. It's his Judean ministry. There's some miracles and parables in there. Right smack in the center of that section is Luke chapter 15, where we find Jesus' longest parable, and as I said, probably this greatest parable. We'll talk about what it is in a moment. And it is a sort of like a mountain peak, dead smack in the center of his Judean ministry. Here's what it is. Luke 15 is the only triple parable. It is three stories making one point. It's the parable of the lost, which really, I should say, it's three stories with one point. One parable, it's the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and the story of the lost son. Now, why does Jesus tell three stories in one parable? Dead smack, Luke puts it in the center of this section. When you're reading something and you find something that's important, you tend to underline it, right? If it's really important, you underline it how many times? If it's really, really important, you underline it three times. <clears throat> Luke doesn't underline. Jesus doesn't underline. He's verbally speaking. When he's trying to make an important point, he repeats himself like your mother did to you when you were a child. Saying the same thing in multiple ways to try and drive the point home. And that is what Jesus is doing right here. So what is Jesus trying to say so strongly? These things. God loves lost people. God cares about lost people. And the great joy in heaven is when lost people are saved and brought home. That's what he's saying. Very, very important, especially when it's easy for us to forget about lost people and become ingrown over time and only care about ourselves over time. To show you this, uh, we're not going to have a chance to study all three stories in the one parable, the lost sheep, the last coin, and the lost son. I'm only going to have the chance to study the lost sheep and the lost coin this morning. In your life groups, you'll have a chance to study the lost son. But let me show you that they're all making the same point. Look at the application and the end of each of these parables. The story of the lost sheep. How does it end? Just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The lost coin ends this way. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The story of the lost son. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is 
profound. The same thing. God has a heart for lost people. We must have a heart for lost people. Now, before you get to the parable of the lost sheep, or the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, which is really one parable, there are these two verses at the beginning of chapter 15 that sort of set things up for us. Here's what they are. Jesus ate with sinners is the point. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Pharisees and scribes, they were the religious elite of the day. They hated people that were far from God. They avoided spending time with people who were far from God. They looked down on people who were far from God. People who are they called sinners. People who were lost. People they called, who are known as tax collectors. But you notice Jesus, our Savior, our hero, the one who died for us, took a very different approach. Instead of avoiding these people, he intentionally spent time with these people. He loved on these people that were far from God, even eating with them. Luke 5.29 talks about this. It says, And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Levi is also, it's Matthew. We know him because he actually ends up writing the first of our Gospels in our, our New Testament. He was a tax collector. He was one of these people that the religious elite, the Pharisees and scribes, would never have spent time with. Not even given the time of day to. Just totally avoided Levi. But Jesus didn't avoid Levi. He actually went over his house, had a meal with him and said, hey, invite all your tax collector buddies so I can actually meet them, get to know them, and spend time with them. Jesus loved lost people. And what difference did it make? Levi, that is Matthew, became a Christian. Levi became a disciple. In fact, Levi wrote the first of your New Testament books. Now we talk about tax collectors and sinners. I mean, we get the idea of sinners and not wanting to spend time with people who are really messed up in life and really far from God in life, but tax collectors. Why do tax collectors and sinners often go together in the same line in the Scripture? Tax collectors were Jewish people who sort of sold out. They decided they would work for the Romans, collecting taxes for the Romans. It was a very lucrative business for them, but it was a socially devastating business because the Jews hated being occupied by the Romans. And if you were a tax collector for the Romans, the Jews shunned you publicly and socially. They would not spend any time with you, they would not acknowledge you in public. You could talk to them and they would just pretend like you weren't even there. Socially devastating. You were not allowed to even go to synagogue if you were a tax collector. No community like this that you could be a part of. In fact, the only other people you had as your friends were other tax collectors. Which is why when it came time for Jesus to go to Matthew's house, the only people that Matthew could invite over were other sinners and other tax collectors, because those are the only ones who would be his friends. If I could analogize it today, it'd sort of be like a, a drug dealer. You know, don't we tend to want to avoid the drug dealers? The only people, when you're a drug dealer, your other friends are other drug dealers in the same business, because most everybody else, unless they're buying from you, wants to actually stay away from you. So that's what it's like. Luke 19, 7, it says this, And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. When the Pharisees and scribes see Jesus hanging out with sinners, people who are drunk maybe, people who were at one time or even still are 
prostitutes, people who are tax collectors. All they did was gossip about Jesus and speak down about Jesus. Now, who did the Pharisees and the scribes hang out with? Each other, exactly. They would only hang out with each other while they'd never spend time with people who were far from God. And here we are only two verses into Matthew, or Luke 15, rather, and we're already finding the Scriptures rebuking us. Isn't that just like us? Aren't we just like the Pharisees? Aren't we just like the scribes? Who do we spend all our time with? Other Christians. Do we spend any time with people who are desperately far from God? How much time intentionally do we spend eating with people who need to meet Christ? How much time do we spend time seeking people who need to make, meet Christ? Jesus did that. We don't do that. At least most of us don't. The Pharisees and scribes only spend time with each other. And so often, that's exactly what Christians do today. Give you an idea about how hardcore the Pharisees were on this. I ran across this in the Mishnah. I'll just read this to you. This is what they said. Let not a man associate with the wicked, not even to bring him nearer to the law. Wow. You guys have the truth. You have God's word. But you were so, so, they were so afraid to associate with somebody who was sinful. Like it would rub off on them. They would never associate with them. That's not healthy. Not helpful at all. Well, the message of Luke 15 is what brings great joy to the heart of God is when lost people are saved. At the end of the day, we can either be a church filled with Pharisees and scribes that just spends time with other Christians, or we can be a church that intentionally spends time with people who need to hear about Jesus, just like Jesus did. At the end of the day, what kind of church are we going to be? The elders would say that in the next five years, we don't want to be a church of Pharisees and scribes who just spend time with one another. We want to be a church that just like Jesus meets with the lost, seeks the lost, and introduces them to the good news of Jesus. And when we do that, that brings great joy to God in heaven. Let me show you how this unfolds. The first parable is the parable of the lost sheep. And incidentally, all three of these stories follow the same structure. It talks about something being lost, then being sought, then being found and celebrated, and then Jesus throws an application on the end, which shows you how they're all designed to go together. First, the lost section. Luke 15. And so he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. So this story is about a shepherd. Maybe multiple shepherds. But the point is that on the social scale of things, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and scribes who see themselves as always better than others, more religious than others. And then he immediately starts talking about shepherds, which by the way, are on the absolute lowest end of the social scale. If you couldn't get a job doing anything else, you could always get a job being a shepherd. Which, by the way, makes it really interesting when we get to Christmas. In Luke's Gospel, who do the angels announce the birth of Jesus to? First, shepherds, the nobodies in the world, reminding us that Jesus came to save ordinary people. So, he starts by talking about this shepherd. Um, this shepherd is taking care of a hundred sheep. 
Now, most likely, this is not a single shepherd. Most likely, this is multiple shepherds. Uh, I did some research. Typically, a family would have up to 15 sheep, but a community would put their sheep together. And this is where you get a 100 sheep because it's hard for one shepherd to tend a 100 sheep. So maybe there's a couple shepherds in here. But really what we find, that the key part is, uh, they get back and they start counting things up and they realize they have a sheep that has gone MIA, missing in action. Now, the seeking begins. That's the next part. The shepherd doesn't say, well, you know, I still have 99. That's close enough. That's good enough. The shepherd knows that every sheep counts. In fact, if an average family would have 15 or less sheep, losing one sheep would be a big impact on a single family. And it was expected in that day that when a sheep was lost, a shepherd's job was to seek that sheep and find that sheep no matter how long it took, no matter where they had to go. This was expected so a shepherd, would, when they leave to look for the sheep, they'd bring their lantern. They'd bring their coat. They may be up all night long retracing their steps, looking for that sheep. That was expected. Every sheep counted. Incidentally, sheep are pretty vulnerable animals. Most of us don't know this because we don't have sheep, but they have no defense mechanism. I was read as I was studying this that if a sheep has a heavy wool coat and it falls over on its side, it gets so stuck, it cannot get up because of the weight of its coat. Sheep are very tender in spirit that if they realize they're lost, they sometimes will lay down and not move. They will stay there and die of fear and dehydration, literally being scared to death. So a shepherd knows that he has to keep looking, keep searching for that sheep. And it was expected that when that shepherd come back, came back to the village, there was either the sheep healthy and whole in his hands or the, what was left of it after an animal ate it. You did not come back empty-handed. Now, what happens is the shepherd finds the sheep. Luke 15, 5. And when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing give you a little bit of background and typically what shepherds did. Remember, these guys are not big, hulking guys like Paul over there, you know. They're small guys. Uh, the sheep usually would weigh around 70, 75 pounds. They would take the feet and they'd bind it together, all of them together with a leather strap like this, Then they would put the sheep on their shoulders and they would carry the sheep home with the legs in the front. They would hold down here. It was very hard to carry a 75-pound sheep over a long distance. But the shepherd was willing to make that sacrifice. The shepherd would make that sacrifice with joy because every sheep counted, and this lost sheep was going to be brought back home. And when he, the sheep came home, this is what we find. Celebration. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. There's a party when the sheep comes home. And I was thinking about that. Well, I don't understand this idea of having a party when a lost sheep is found. And then it sort of dawned on me, well, that's what we do in our house, except it's not a sheep that gets lost. I've told you about our dog, that little eight pounds of attitude, she's a miniature dachshund. So she's a hound, which means they follow this thing. As soon as they catch a scent, they're gone. And we send her out the front yard, go do your business. There she is. Everything's good and well. You, you look away, look back 10 seconds later, you have no idea where she is. And what Cindy will do or I will do is, She's gone again. Time to start looking. And so Cindy and I go outside, start looking down by the pond in the high grass, start looking over the neighbor's yard, because she's just going bonkers after this scent to find where it is. 
And finally, sometimes after 20 minutes or longer of looking, all of a sudden we hear, Founder! We're like, yay! And she has that dopey look on her face like, who, me? Did I do something wrong? You know, and we have a little party. Yay, the dog is home. Well, that's just a dog. Imagine a shepherd who's charged with keeping sheep. Imagine the loss when you do not bring home that sheep. But when you bring home the sheep and you rescue that sheep, there was all kinds of celebration for that sheep. Now, Jesus bridges into the application here. Just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. If it's important for a shepherd to search all night long to find one lost sheep willing to leave behind the 99, isn't it important for us to search real hard for a lost person who's far from God? Not putting all of our focus inside these walls to the 99 who already know Jesus? Why is it important to work so hard for, to seek and save lost people? Jesus loves the lost. The scripture says here, there is great joy in heaven when the lost are saved. Folks, there's going to be more joy in heaven when the lost people are saved and brought in than anything we do as the 99 hanging out with one another inside of these walls. It's true. More joy when the lost are saved than hanging out with the 99 who do not need to be saved. What does it say, Luke 19.10? For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This past week, I was involved in some planning and stuff in the Spencer campus, and one person said, hey, we got to have a big cross, and I'm not going to get into that whole discussion, but I just thought it was interesting. The sort of topic came up, just so you know, like the cross isn't like the original Christian symbol out there. It's been around for a while. It's a, it's a good Christian symbol. It's an easy one to draw, just two lines, but it's not the original symbol. Some of you know that the early church, in particular the Gentiles, used a fish as a symbol for Christianity, but there is a symbol that predates even that. You know what it is? It's the picture of a shepherd carrying a sheep. That's the earliest one. Because it says, when I was lost, Jesus sought me and found me. When I was helpless, Jesus picked me up and carried me home. I had no way to make it to heaven until Jesus sought me, found me, picked me up, and brought me there. Now, the picture of the shepherd carrying a sheep, that fell out of vogue because, quite honestly, it's just a little bit harder to draw than a cross. But I think the symbolism of a shepherd carrying a sheep is super incredibly powerful. And what Jesus calls us to be is to be those shepherds who go out looking for the lost sheep, tirelessly giving our energy to find the lost sheep, not just content to hang out with the 99 who are already safe and saved. And the degree to which we focus just on ourselves and just internally, it shows us how much more we are like the Pharisees and scribes than like Jesus. In fact, when we don't focus on reaching lost people, it shows our heart is not in sync with Jesus. And that brings us to the next short story, which is the lost coin. Luke 15, verses 8 through 10. Now, Jesus has just asked the hoity-toity Pharisees and scribes to imagine themselves 
as a shepherd, which is, of course, something they would never want to do because shepherds are too lowly. Here he now asks them to imagine themselves as a woman, which is also something these stuck-up guys would never want to do. Just so you know, they despised women. I'm not saying I despise women. I married a wife. I, you know, but the point is, in this culture, in this time, they despised women. Let me show you one of the prayers that they prayed in their morning prayers. I have it here. They would pray, God, I thank you for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That shows you where their heart's at. So, here again, we have lost, sought, found, and celebrated. Lost. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? The picture here is of a poor woman. We're talking a mud and straw house. No windows in the house. Hence, it's dark in the house. And she has ten silver coins. The Greek would call this coin the drachma. Uh, the Romans would call it a denarius. It's roughly a day's wages. So this is all of her money. Ten days' wages. And she loses one of those coins. Not a lot of cash to lose, but it's a lot of cash to her. How do you think she responds? Looking, searching, tirelessly, tearing apart the house, using a lamp to search every corner of the house, turning over every piece of furniture. She cannot rest until she finds this money. Super, super important because it means so much. Then what happens if she, and when she looks for this? Oh, by the way, I should mention this. I tried to analogize this a little bit. And what came to mind for me is what happens when a woman loses her wedding ring. Ladies, any of you ever lost your wedding ring? No one's willing to put their hand up? Okay, well, I'll just tell you there was a period of time where my wife lost her wedding ring. She was helping out in the elementary school classroom for our kids, and they had a costume she was supposed to wear. It was a big bear costume, which I still think was hilarious seeing my wife. I didn't see her, but I just imagine it. My wife in a bear costume trying to run around the, the classroom. Well, she got home after doing her uh, deed over there, and she realized she didn't have her wedding ring on. She freaked out. I mean, she went back to the school, went through the bear costume. She talked to the principal, the vice principal. She talked to everybody, every teacher looking for the wedding ring. She turned the house upside down. And I'm like, honey, it's okay. And she's crying. I've lost the wedding ring. I'm like, it's insured. And she's like, I don't care. You know, it's the wedding ring. It looks forever. Now, the good news is about three days later, she did find it. It was in the vegetable tray in the refrigerator, which means we should have eaten our vegetables sooner. We would have found it. But I understand that passionate looking for something that is so important. That is what this woman is doing. She's looking for this lost coin. And she finds it, as it says this in Luke 15, 9, and when she found it, she celebrated, and she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Incidentally, when it says friends and neighbors, it's in the feminine tense. So she calls her girlfriends and her girlfriend neighbors. Could you imagine this on social media today? You know, all of the chitter-chatter about, I've lost my lost coin, and the celebration, Oh, congratulations, I like your post, you know, all that kind of stuff. And... Luke 15.10 says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What gives God more joy? The 99 righteous people who are safe and sound, who do not need to repent, or the one, people, the one sheep that was lost that is now found? What gives joy to God? Where does he celebrate? When the one that is lost is found. And by the way, if you look in here, it says there is joy before the angels of God. Who's celebrating? Is it the angels? Read it closely. Is it the angels celebrating? It's God celebrating. 
this is the way you want to picture it. You guys like football? Anybody football fans? You know what it's like when you're watching your team and you're down and there's about 15 seconds to go in the fourth quarter and your quarterback has the ball and your receiver runs down to the end zone and your quarterback launches the ball and the receiver has that amazing catch in the end zone, scores and you win the game and everybody comes off the couch cheering with their hands in the air. You know that moment? That is what God does. When somebody who is far from God is brought near and they're born again. Folks, what will bring more joy to God's heart than anything we do with one another is reaching lost people. If God places a high value on those, those who are far from God being saved, we have to place a high value on those who are far from God being saved. If Jesus spent time with tax collectors and sinners in order to reach them, we have to spend time with tax collectors and sinners in our world in order to reach them. We cannot be like the Pharisees who just spent time with one another. The Pharisees and scribes, oh, they claimed they were in sync with God's heart. But the honest truth is they were really out of sync with God's heart because they didn't care about lost people. The elders want us for five years to really focus on reaching the lost. Folks, that means things are going to change. Will there be some things around the church that change? Maybe the way some things look? Maybe the way we do some things? Yeah, there'll be some of those things that change. But folks, that's not the most important thing to change. The most important thing that needs to change is right here. We need to value what God values. We need to be like Jesus and reach and save and care about those who are lost. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.